0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by Alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So, wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host,
1: Greg LeBlanc.
0: This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm at Unsiloed. And today I'm with Liam Vaughn, who is an investigative reporter at Bloomberg and also the author of two excellent books. This one here is the latest. It's called Flash Crash, and we'll probably spend most of the time talking about this book. But then there's another book which you co-authored, which I really enjoyed, called The Fix, which is uh, one of the best kind of reports of LIBOR and how LIBOR was was hacked and how that whole thing unraveled. And I think we're still kind of feeling the effects of that. We haven't really sorted out how we're going to. Think about those markets, but why don't we get started talking about Flash Crash, and then we'll talk a little more about how you came to this story, how you've been doing your reporting, and what are the next stories that you're interested in. I, I actually found that in this book, there are a bunch of side stories that were at least as interesting as the main story, and which could serve as fodder for you a know, whole bunch of other books. And so let's get started by talking about Nav Sarau. And how did you first come to know about him? What drove you to write this book? And when the flash crash happened, were you thinking, hey, this is something that I really need to look into? Or did it only occur to you as a major story after the arrest of Nav Sarau?
1: So I was working as a beat reporter, really, at Bloomberg covering finance in London. And I think actually when the flash crash happened, I wasn't even at Bloomberg yet. I think I joined in 2011. You know, it was, it was an event that I was aware of as a finance reporter, but didn't pay a huge amount of attention to it at the time. And then it was five years later in 2015, when there was an arrest of a guy called Navinder Singh Sarao, who was a, a day trader in London. And there was an announcement, quite a lot of fanfare from the US Justice Department, that they'd finally got the culprit of the flash crash, which had occurred five years earlier. And the story just instantly piqued my and, and pretty much everyone that does what I do's attention at the time for a number of reasons. One was that the idea that this guy on his own could potentially have, you know, helped cause this global financial crash just seemed really surprising and perplexing. And then gradually over time information about who he was started to emerge. This was a guy who was operating out of his childhood bedroom in his parents' house underneath the, the flight path of Heathrow Airport, never really worked at a major financial institution, had taught himself to trade, wore a tracksuit and swore like a sailor. And yet when they arrested him, was worth $70 million. So he was just such an unlikely character it wasn't just that it was one guy that was this thing was being pinned on but it was this guy that that made it fascinating and then as a reporter you know you're kind of scrambling around trying to find how you can push the story forward you know everyone's doing the same thing and just by a real stroke of luck i actually happened to know a guy who used to sit next to nav when nav had first started learning to trade at what were called arcades. So a far cry from an investment bank, you're talking more like uh, an internet cafe, really, where they give you some funding and, and, and you learn how to trade. And my friend had sat next to him. And even before he'd become kind of infamous for this event, everyone remembered Nav because he was such a brilliant trader and such an idiosyncratic guy. He used to kind of sit there with the kind of ear defenders that Road users would use to block out noise and would sit there in, you know, in a catatonic state for eight hours a day. It was just so much better at trading than all of everyone else in the room. Once I started going down that route, you know, I really realized that this was a really unusual and a great financial story.
0: I think one part of the story is that he's kind of like the last of the Mohicans in, in many ways, because the markets have been dominated by algorithmic traders by you know large institutions that engage in high frequency trading and you know I teach courses in finance and we've looked at these crashes whether it's the remember the united airlines <laughs> fake news crash and obama got shot fake news story and the way i've always thought about them is as being just completely driven by the algorithms right so you know an algorithm triggers a trade which then leads to other algorithms triggering trades and so forth and and then the whole thing happens and unwinds without any you know, real human agency. And yet here we have a story where the authorities are pinning at least the proximate cause of the crash on an individual trader who is making manual trades with his mouse, right? Actually buying and selling. And so that's kind of, to me, the most surprising part of the whole story is that, you know, you still actually have an actual human who is making these fairly large trades based on, his flow and his instincts and his reading of the latter. To what extent is he kind of representative of almost like a previous generation of traders?
1: I do agree with your characterization of him as the sort of last of the Mohicans. And he almost takes a stand against the rise of the HFTs and ultimately it proves fruitless and he gets taken down. But for a while it works. But the thing about Nav and what I tried to do with the book is that he arrives at exactly the right time because he starts trading in 2003, which is the very beginnings of screen-based mass trading. So essentially, you had all the pits in, in the futures markets that closed in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Everything migrated onto screens. But at that point... His competitors were pretty rudimentary in the way that they approached markets and the way they bought and sold. And one way to think of it is that you had all these guys that were in the pits, a lot of them fairly kind of blue-collar guys that were great in that hustle and bustle of a kind of physical trading environment, suddenly attempting to kind of buy and sell things very quickly using a mouse. I mean, you have a guy like Nav, who was a really brilliant computer gamer incredibly fast thinking you know had this amazing mental arithmetic ability and so for the first few years he was just taking on these guys and and was really really successful and so you know he goes from a standing start essentially in 2003 to by the time he leaves the first arcade in 2008 he's worth two million dollars the following year after the financial crisis had begun he was worth 12 million dollars so he was laughing but things started to go South, maybe 2006, 2007, where you start to get real kind of mass arrival of, of HFT in financial markets. And the reason for that is what, what NAB's doing is a form of trading called scalping, which is essentially trading very, very short horizons. You're essentially looking at all the orders to buy and sell coming into the market. And you're passing that information almost like a computer to assess whether statistically you think the market's likely to go up or down. And to be fair, there was lots more kind of shenanigans and games that used to go on at that point in time. And Nav's personal skills and characteristics made him very, very good at that. But no matter how good you are, you know, it's like Gary Kasparov playing chess. No matter how good you are, a machine is going to be better than you eventually. So there's this sort of turning point in the book where he starts to find that it's just harder for him to get the trades. It's harder for him to get out the way of adverse trades. And it, it just starts to become difficult for him. And what he finds is that other people that are day traders like him, they leave the market or they decide that they're going to try a different strategy, maybe a more long-term strategy. But Nav, being Nav, takes this kind of stance where he's like, no, screw that. He literally says, if you can't beat them, join them. And that was a, you know, a real great moment in reporting a book that I stumbled upon his forum posts, which had never been made public. And the investigators weren't even aware of them. And there in black and white, he'd actually sort of made a note where he's like, has anyone noticed how the markets are so unfair these days and how HFT are cheating and spoofing? And then three days later, he comes back and he says, scrap that, I've decided if you can't beat them, join them. So he essentially builds this algorithm of his own, which is expressly designed to take on the HFTs and to sort of use their features against them, if you like.
0: Yeah, that's a great story. I want to backtrack a bit because while he might be the last of the Mohicans, he really replaced a previous type of Mohicans, right? The pit traders. And you have a little side story about them. You talk about this guy, Cornbread, right? And he sort of represents the really, really old guard. And I sense that someone like Nav would never have survived in a pit environment. It was a very different sort of person that thrived in that environment. I mean, he may have had the quick wits and the and the instincts, but there was really a lot of physical, social, and environmental facial expressions and emotional cues that you had to be able to read in order to survive in that pit environment. And those skills became useless. I mean, these were athletes for the most part in the pits. Could you tell us just a little bit about like how did those pit environments work from a sociological perspective? There's a lot of kind of sociology in, in your book.
1: Yeah. So certainly in the UK, the pits were essentially started in the 80s and the 90s and were places where people would come together to trade financial futures or commodities or whatever those securities might be. And essentially, you would have a central pit where you would have guys wearing jackets representing either different firms or they would trade for themselves. And then round these pits, you would have people on phones inputting orders into the pits. And the advantage of this system, which, you know, was effective for its time, is that there was always sort of liquidity. There was always people ready to take the other side of of trades. And a lot of that job, if you like, was done by what were called locals that wore red jackets. And they were essentially trading for their own accounts. But in exchange for that, these individuals would have to take on a lot of risk themselves. But they would get advantages. And the advantages were that they would get to know the brokers who were going to place orders and they would be able to get in ahead of those orders or they would be able to form relationships with other traders and form allegiances so i guess i describe it as a more informal type of market structure that actually was quite effective there wasn't much in the way of regulation there's this sort of anecdote that keeps coming up which is that if you cheated once you might get away with it if you cheated three times You'd probably get thrown out and beaten up in the pub after work. So it wasn't the same kind of formalized system. It was more like a sort of, I guess, a sort of gentleman's type approach to regulating the markets. And yeah, you're you're absolutely right. The people that thrived in that environment were people that were quick thinking, very sociable, were able to form these relationships, but also had a lot of mental fortitude. Maybe could take the kind of ribbing and the cart and thrust of being in that kind of environment which is incredibly exhausting for eight or nine hours a day. What both the later form of trading and and this form of trading did have in common is you do need to be able to have a a high propensity to stomach risk. Particularly these red-jacketed locals, they are essentially wagering their own money, their mortgage money or their holiday money. And you have to be able to go in every day if the opportunity is right to put that on the line day in and day out. And that's something that NAV did have as well when it came to electronic trading. But yeah, the difference was when it moved to screen-based trading, it became faster and it became more about gamesmanship and being able to read your opponents and to react very quickly and to be dexterous. And it almost yeah, suited those kind of computer game types, at least in the early days.
0: And so what spoofing is something that would be very difficult to do in that pit environment, the way that you could do it with the anonymity of screen-based trading, right?
1: Yeah, so what Nav goes on to do when he decides that he's had enough of the HFT firms is that he decides he's going to build this algorithm. And essentially, it's like a spoofing machine. And so if you imagine that HFT, at least the sort of form of futures-based HFT that I write about in the book, essentially what you have is like robots (laughs) monitoring order flow, monitoring orders coming and leaving the market, and essentially using very fast technology to try and statistically analyze which way the market is about to move and to jump ahead of that trade before anyone else can do that the advantage that they have is that they're incredibly quick and that they're programmed by very very smart people that are able to deduce statistical likelihood incredibly well what they don't have going for them is an ability to really differentiate between good signals and bad signals if you like so what nav does is if you can imagine a very basic example whereby A bunch of sell orders enter the market a huge number of sell orders enter the market well it would suggest that the the price is likely to go down and then you might see the algorithms also start to join the selling in anticipation of a of an inevitable market fall and that was obviously a very basic example but to be fair like nav's algorithm wasn't hugely more complicated than that at least at first so what nav did is he started to fire orders into the market that would cause algorithms to react, cause other participants to react, and then he would trade around that, and then he would cancel his orders before they could ever be hit. So he was basically deceiving the market about supply and demand. And you're right. I mean, in the days of the pit, essentially all you had is a buy and a sell price, whereas what electronic trading introduced is that you could see prices all the way up the ladder. So you could see the current best buy and the current best offer, but you could also see all of the offers waiting In the queue, a stock might be trading at a dollar. There'll be a load of people that say that they're willing to sell stock for $1.10 and they'll be waiting in the market. And if you can pass that information effectively, you can get a sense of whether the market's likely to go up or down. One of the things that I found really fascinating in doing the book is that despite the apparent sophistication of, of these HFT firms, despite their huge profits and the caliber of the people they hired, that they were so easily fooled by Nav's machine that essentially he basically built this machine that would fire orders like three or four or five price points above the current best offer, so far enough away that it wasn't likely to be hit. And he would just fire such huge orders that it really sort of changed the scale. And without fail, at least at first, the HFT firms and others would respond to that. So it wasn't like four-dimensional chess. It really was pretty straightforward. He did over time adapt the algorithm to become a bit more sophisticated and to try and keep up with the advances of HFT, but it never really got to a hugely complicated form.
0: What's fascinating is he was able to build this algorithm at such a low cost. I mean, he wound up paying, what, $20,000 to have it custom designed for him on a readily available software tool that pretty much any trader could get access to?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first incarnation of this thing, he had a basic software package with trading technologies and he wrote to the guy at trading technologies and they came and they installed it for him for free. They didn't even ask what this feature that he wanted that was going to fire and then cancel orders would be for. And then later on, as he kind of wanted to modify it and get a bit more control, yeah, he wrote to a a software guy in in Chicago and you're right, I think they agreed on $25,000 and I think NAV then patched him out of a few grand. So the guy never really even got what was agreed.
0: Did that guy ever monetize that with other customers? I mean, it seemed like this tool, pretty much anybody could use this tool to do what Nav did.
1: Yeah, so that's almost like a subplot of the book. So he gets in touch with this guy called Jitesh Sakhar. He gives him quite a detailed blueprint for this, essentially a spoofing machine that is going to place orders and then cancel them once other things are happening in the market. And it was very effective. It meant that those orders that were spoof orders really very, very rarely got hit. But it was pretty basic. And the guy had it up and running within a few months. At the time, the wording of their contracts was such that the software developer was going to be able to market it and sell it to other people. But that came back to bite him quite badly because not, you know, meaning to sort of spoiler alert the story. But after Nav ends up getting arrested, he then gives evidence against this guy, and the software developer ends up being charged for aiding and abetting spoofing. And it was a fascinating case because it was really about whether, as a third-party software developer, as a vendor, how much responsibility you have for what your customer goes on to do with your product. And in this case, as you say, the guy made $20,000 and probably spent six months on it, and that made sometimes several million dollars in a single day, And ultimately, Jitesh was found Well, the case was actually thrown out. So he was never criminally prosecuted for it. But yes, I think you would do well to think twice in the future about just asking questions, really, about what this guy might want to use it for. Either that or don't ask questions. One or the other. Well, I think that was the problem, that he didn't ask the question, and the the whole point was that he was quite sophisticated and experienced market practitioner, that he he was on some committee of the CFTC, so the whole argument was like, anyone who's been in this market for any time would have known what it was for, but you're right, the evidence wasn't theirs.
0: Now, you point out that the practice of spoofing is something that's been around for as long as we've had markets. I mean, you pointed to how Daniel Defoe described this behaviour, 250 years ago. And so there have been customs, there have been laws, there have been rules that have emerged in markets to try to mandate some form of transparency or authenticity to minimize the likelihood of spoofing. So why is it that 250 years later, the CFTC didn't have in place any kind of real binding legal rules that would make this impossible or difficult?
1: So that was an interesting kind of adjunct to the story which is about the the genesis of the manipulation and the spoofing rules I mean as as we kind of already touched on spoofing just wasn't as much of an issue until really the birth of electronic trading and I think it took a while for it to become as pervasive as it did and there was the passing of the Dodd-Frank rules I was going through you know in my interviews with the regulators they sort of talk about how these big pieces of legislation are almost like an opportunity to like hang on other kind of things that you might have on your wish list that haven't really got anything to do with the overarching theme of Dodd-Frank. So in this case, the CFTC has got this kind of woeful record prosecuting market manipulation. Like it, it literally has won one case at trial, or it had until fairly recently. And the reason for that is because the market manipulation rules are such that such a high bar to demonstrate that somebody's actually manipulated the market that they would even not bring cases, or when they did, they would lose them. One of the fundamental issues is that you have to demonstrate intent. So not only do you have to sort of have the data that shows that you traded in, in a way that looks like you were trying to hammer the clothes or manipulate the market or whatever it was, but you have to have some kind of evidence that you meant to do it and that you succeeded in doing it. There's not even enough that you meant to do it, but you have to demonstrate that the price was different than it otherwise would have been. So it's such an onerous thing. So when Dodd-Frank was passing, you know, the kind of regulator that the CFTC saw an opportunity to issue more specific laws. So you could just define spoofing as placing an order that you intend to cancel. And they sort of defined banging the clothes at that point in time. So the regulators saw this as, I guess, an opportunity to redress the balance and to be able to bring these kind of manipulation cases.
0: And I think, an outsider would look at this and say, Navarro was a scapegoat. He's not someone with a big legal team. He's not somebody with counsel that can protect him from putting incriminating evidence into emails and so forth. And that he's the tip of an iceberg and that there are large scale practitioners who would be engaging in these practices who, who are escaping any kind of accountability. To what extent is that true that he's really a scapegoat, that he's an easy person to pick on, that, that he's a distraction from what's really going on in the markets?
1: Inevitably, it's complicated. Like With Nav, you can easily be deceived by the fact that he wore a tracksuit and lived in his parents' house. He was, make no mistake, the biggest market manipulator ever in the futures market. Over a period of 400 days, he spooked the market to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars every single day. And on the day of the flash crash, he made a million dollars. So there's a couple of questions. One is, was he unfairly prosecuted for cheating the market well i would argue no the evidence is pretty clear that he set out to spook the market and he did do that but what really landed him in trouble and that is definitely a open for debate is what impact he actually had on the day of the flash crash and so you know the flash crash itself just a quick recap is may 6th 2010 and it was a pretty volatile period in financial markets anyway the markets had been sort of tumbling throughout the day. It was the Eurozone crisis. And then at 1.41pm exactly, suddenly the markets fell off a cliff and you had both S&P futures and individual stocks crashing at a velocity they never had before or since. A trillion dollars was sort of wiped off the markets in a space of five minutes. And there was a kind of post-mortem after that. Everyone was kind of hand-wringing about, well, what does this mean and is this going to happen again? And one of the interesting things is that even though the FCC and the CFTC did this big report, they didn't identify manipulation at all as a potential factor, let alone identify NAV. And there was also uh, another actor that day, which is this, and you may have taught this in your class, but is this pension fund called Wad and Reed from Kansas City that just so happened to enact a huge $4 billion sell order. Because they were concerned about the movement of the market, but they did it in such a way that there was no kind of limit on the price that they were willing to accept. So that order entered the market almost concurrently with the price crashing. But there was other things where there were technical issues at some of the exchanges. There was a lot of HFT that was there providing liquidity that that sort of left. And so NAV was spoofing that day. That much is certain. He made a million dollars. But the question is, did he help cause the crash? And that is definitely still a matter of controversy. Even now, I think, you know, if you speak to the Justice Department, they'll argue in a financial market, it's impossible to kind of extricate one actor from another. But the fact is that he was acting very recklessly in spoofing the market lower on this day when all this other stuff was happening. So you can't say that he didn't contribute to it. But there's been some academic studies that have looked at trading on a millisecond by millisecond basis, and they say it would have happened anyway, and to blame it on this guy is is ludicrous. So a long-winded way of saying, I think that Nav was very unfortunate that he happened to turn his computer on that day, because otherwise, A, he would never have caught the attention of this whistleblower guy, and B, even if he had got caught, he probably would have got away with maybe a fine and a ban from trading, as opposed to 22 criminal counts of Wire forward, which is what happened.
0: What I find also interesting is that it took so long for him to be identified. And there was a massive investigation of the flash crash and a long report, and there was no mention of him. And so just as you mentioned, the the large hedge funds and high-frequency traders were unaware of him, so too were the authorities. I think you had a quote in there that while the traders are riding motorcycles, the uh, authorities are, are riding mopeds. Is that just a structural problem that the regulators are always behind? I think when we look back to what happened in 2007 and 2008, I think, you know, the SEC was clearly underweaponized, And with Bernie Madoff, he was not detected by any authorities. He was detected by a competitor who had um, difficulty replicating the trades. And then when he notified Harry Macropolis, when he notified the SEC, the SEC kind of blew him off. Why did it take this guy, Mr. X, to actually identify him? rather than the authorities.
1: Yeah. So what essentially happens is that there's this immediate investigation into the flash crash. Everyone's up in arms. This event's really kind of destabilizing and everyone's wondering if it's going to happen again. And then everyone's talking about, oh, let's regulate the markets a bit. Let's find out what algorithms people are using and try and have a bit more scrutiny. And then gradually the attention span of politicians turns onto something else and everyone forgets about it. And then in 2012, another guy who's trading essentially for his own account is backtesting some software that he's built, and he decides to backtest it on the day of the flash crash because that was such an eventful day. So he wants to see if his software is effective, at, you know, software that allows him to visualize what's happening in the market. So he just turns it on, on May 6, 2010, and he sees that there's all these 100 million blocks of sell orders entering and then being canceled in the market, and He's an experienced trader. It takes him a while, but eventually he comes to the conclusion that this must be manipulation. And he's one of the very first people to apply to the, the new whistleblower program, which is like the paid whistleblower program that came in with Dodd-Frank. But you're absolutely right. The incredible thing is that he doesn't have access to who's trading. All he can see is like, orders entering anonymously into the market which is publicly available information and yet you have the cftc and the sec that both apparently did this deep dive using full data as to who exactly was doing what and it completely eluded them There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that the idea of spoofing wasn't well understood. Spoofing depends on people placing and cancelling orders. And what a lot of the original investigation was based on was the actual orders that were consummated. So that was one thing. But like a bigger answer to your question, I think, and it's something that comes up a lot in my reporting, is that the first line of defence for cheating in financial markets or selling futures markets is supposed to be the exchange. So the CME is a self-regulatory organisation or authority, and that means that it has a supervisory function. It's supposed to monitor what's going on in its markets and identify when people are doing things wrong. But the problem is the CME is also one of the most profitable companies in America. It thrives on high-frequency trading and the volume of trading that goes on. It's not good for business to turn around and say our markets are vulnerable to abuse and manipulation. And so ultimately... In this case, you have the CME failing to identify what was pretty obvious to this guy was going on that day. And it's not the first time, you know, we can maybe get to it. But there's another story I've recently worked on, which is about what happened in the oil market on the day that it went negative. And a similar kind of story there where you have the CME turning around and saying the markets behaved perfectly and when it's pretty obvious that they didn't. So I think that that's a real problem with the current market structure in the U.S.
0: But on the other hand, the commodities markets are dominated by the big boys, and it's kind of hard to get a lot of support around the idea of protecting Citadel, whereas protecting kind of the retail investor in the stock market is something that everybody can kind of get around. Is there, is there yes. a difference between the way the SEC treats the stock market and the way the CFTC deals with the commodity markets in that respect?
1: Yes, there is, but it's not what it's supposed to be. So there's a sort of practical reason why it's developed that way, which is that CFTC is hugely underfunded, and it's typically mostly staffed by very bright lawyers, not technicians, not finance folk. And so essentially they are quite dependent on the exchange to alert them to what's going on in the markets. And there's that analogy to a Ferrari and a moped or whatever. Well, that's getting further and further away as more and more the citadels of the world invest in in technology the budget of the cftc doesn't increase and i think you're absolutely right like there is a difference in the sense that commodities markets and futures are peopled by professionals but ultimately they also determine the prices of commodities that affect you and me that are buying oil or cocoa or gold or whatever that has real world economic impact But certainly the SEC has an added responsibility, particularly as we're seeing at the moment with kind of Robin Hood and stuff, whereby essentially anyone can gamble in the stock market more easily. And there's a kind of added responsibility there. And the SEC, as a result of that, has got considerably more funding than the CFTC.
0: It's a story where it's kind of hard to easily sort people into the good guys and bad guys. You know, Jessica Harris, the folks in the CFTC, they come across as good guys, but they're they're almost like a sideshow. And I found that, There was some delicious irony here in that Nav made his first big score trading against Jerome Curviel, who was a crook, and then he wound up losing all of his money in a bunch of Ponzi schemes. And so he made his money from a crook initially and then lost all his money to a crook. The second story I found particularly interesting and and a potential another book for you. Tell us a bit about Jesus Garcia and what you learned about him, and more importantly, What you learned about that whole world of tax shelters and scams, I mean, they say a fool and his money are soon parted. And, you know, Nav, as brilliant as he was with respect to the video game-like environment of the markets, he wasn't a very good reader of people in the flesh, and he certainly couldn't see through the con artist of this guy, Jesus.
1: Yeah, so one of the just bizarre things about the whole story is that Nav never spent any of the money he would just accumulate money, more and more money. And he took this decision early on that he wasn't going to tell his family about it and he wasn't going to tell his friends about it. You know, he's got quite a simple life in Hounslow, lives with his parents. His mum and dad are on these case about finding a wife and settling down. He plays football with his mates. He drives a, a bike.
0: What did they think he was doing all day?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when he was arrested, his dad was interviewed and he said, I don't know anything about computers. Don't ask me. So they didn't know. I think maybe they had an idea that he was trading, but I think Nav had always been a little bit hard work and maybe it was just best not to ask. He's upstairs doing his thing. And so, yeah, I think one of the things that makes him so sympathetic as a character is that, yes, he's doing his thing in the market. He believes he's justified because he's taking on the HFTs. But at some point, his accountant notices that he's making a huge amount of money and says, hey, Nav, do you want to meet my friends? You know, these guys can really help you with your money. And so he gets introduced to like a cast of increasingly colorful slash crooked investment advisors who glom on to the fact that this is like the ultimate mark because he's got money flooding in and he doesn't spend it and he'll believe whatever you tell him so at first he invests like 15 million pounds in wind farms in scotland He's never been to Scotland. He doesn't know anything about wind farms, but they tell him that this is a great tax opportunity. And if he puts in 15 million, it'll be 250 million in three years. So that's the first thing he does. And then once he does that, he gets introduced to another guy who, yeah, as you say, is called Jesus, who's this kind of Mexican guy who presents himself as an entrepreneur. And he basically says, my family are one of the biggest agricultural families in South America. And, Essentially, gets Nav involved in some other scheme, and all he has to really do is tell Nav that there's a 12% interest rate. And Nav is pretty greedy. He's like, my bank has only given me three percent. This guy says he can give me 12%. He meets him twice, and then he writes a check for 45 million dollars.
0: Do you think that he found these stories believable because his story is so unbelievable and yet true that he thinks that there must be other people out there who have magic gifts like his, and that's why he's not skeptical like an ordinary person would be
1: well i i think the first thing you've got to say is that he was ultimately diagnosed with asperger's syndrome so he has these amazing gifts in one sense but he also sees the world in quite a black and white way so you can see that throughout everything he does like he's like looks at the market sees other people spoofing they don't get in trouble so he's like i'm gonna spoof it doesn't occur to him that where well, he could get in trouble himself he's kind of that's his decision he and he's going to stick to it and I think with these guys, they seem friendly enough. They courted him and would take him, you know, he's just kind of great scene where they take him to Goldman Sachs and he sort of sits there in a tracksuit slurping a coffee and they take him to Switzerland and show him the high life, if you like. And he just totally buys it. But the other side of it, I think, and this is me, pop psychology, but I think for Nav, if he could not spend the money and if he could let other people make these decisions then it almost wasn't real for him it was like he could keep it separate he had his little life in Hounslow and then he had all this investments and stuff and he didn't really have that much to do with it he was just entrusted to somebody else he never spent the money he never told his parents and so he managed to kind of compartmentalize those aspects of his life and that's why I think when the FBI come knocking on the door it's just such a a huge shock. To him because he just didn't anticipate that.
0: So that means he also probably didn't miss the money once he lost it, but he probably missed the life that he had and the thrill of the trading, which he had to give up.
1: Yeah, definitely. The story starts in Nav's bedroom and it ends in Nav's bedroom. He essentially ends up being kind of sent back and is sentenced to house arrest. And yeah, there's this kind of circularity to the whole story. And you're absolutely right. Like of all the people to lose their entire savings, he's probably amongst the best. It's actually quite good timing because he's just been released as of last week. So (laughs) if you can imagine, I've actually received emails from my HFT firm saying, can you put us in touch with Nav? Because we'd love to have a conversation.
0: Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if he could get work in a normal environment. In your other book, Tom Hayes is a figure that is the dominant player in this book. And he's also been diagnosed with Asperger's and they have a lot of similarities in terms of their personalities. You know, they're sort of abrasive folks don't really sometimes know how to get along with people, but he was not given the same leeway as Nav ultimately by the legal system. Do you see similarities between these two characters and and maybe just remind us what Hayes did that you describe in this book?
1: So The Fix tells the story of the LIBOR scandal and it sort of tells it principally through this character of Tom Hayes, who again is good timing because he was released from prison last week. But he became like the ultimate figure of the LIBOR scandal and was sentenced to 11 years in prison. He was actually sentenced to 14 years, reduced to 11. So he, as you rightly point out, didn't get any of the leniency that NAV ultimately got. Just to sort of recap, the LIBOR scandal was this big scandal whereby it turned out that representatives from some of the world's largest banks were lying about their borrowing costs on a daily basis that went into this figure called LIBOR in order to make more profits on their trading books. But it was having this kind of huge impact because LIBOR was baked into all these kind of contracts and mortgages around the world. And it became a really big deal at the time because it was after the financial crisis. So the world blew up. Nobody got prosecuted. Everyone was disgusted with bankers. There was kind of Occupy movement, And banker bashing, certainly over in this country, was really rife. You had Bob Diamond, like, pilloried in front of politicians and losing his job. And then, you know, it, it kind of emerges that these traders are essentially offering to give each other bottles of champagne in order to lie about their interest rates despite the fact that it impacts 350 trillion dollars of securities which really just seems to encapsulate everything that was wrong with the financial system really
0: it almost seems more wrong that they're doing it for a bottle of champagne than they're doing it for 40 50 million dollars right
1: yeah yeah definitely i mean the thing about hayes is that there was this flaw in the system whereby libel was set by either 12 or 16 banks and they would all put in a number and then the average came out and the thing was they would all have these big derivatives books, and wherever the number came out on certain days would affect their profitability. And lots and lots of people were lying about their borrowing costs to try and make a tiny bonus. You know, they might make $50,000 more or something like that. What Hayes did is he kind of industrialized that process. He realized that a lot of the people that set LIBOR relied on speaking to third party brokers to know where to put the number. They'd phone their broker in the morning and say, hey, where's three months dollar or today. And so what Hayes did is he started going to the brokers and saying, if you tell everyone that it's higher today, I'll give you a $100,000 deal, I'll buy you lunch next time, or, or whatever it was. His genius and his flaw was that he, he found a way to take this flaw in the system, which which everyone was was utilizing, and take it to a whole nother level, and was very, very successful. But ultimately, he got caught like lots of other people. One thing I would say about the Hayes case is that there's a huge amount of sympathy towards him because everyone says that he's the scapegoat for libel. Whereas I'm not sure I quite buy that as an unpopular view. But the thing is, throughout, I sort of reference in the book, but he was given warnings essentially that this was not allowed and he essentially ignored those warnings. And then at the end, he decides to confess everything. And so there's tapes and tapes and tapes of where he's saying, Yes, I did this and this is why I did it. And yes, it was deceptive, but everyone did it and my boss is new all that and then after that process he has this kind of very pig-headed which is very nav-like change of part where he's like no screw that this is unfair And he changes his mind so the sfo as it was in the uk had all this evidence of him confessing that he knew that this was wrong and that he did it anyway and yet he was now pleading guilty so i went to trial and they threw the book at him i certainly feel incredibly sorry for him but i also feel like that was just such a stupid decision and he would have probably got a couple of years if he'd stuck to his guilty plea. But yes, both him and NAV do share this anti-authoritarian, kind of arrogant streak that lands them in a hell of a lot of trouble.
0: Yeah, I mean, the LIBOR scandal is so fascinating to me because at universities like mine, we teach in financial engineering classes how to price swaps and so forth. And we have very, very complicated bottles and we throw a ton of firepower at it. And we, we have a ton of software and higher PhDs and pay them a lot of money and do some very sophisticated stuff, but the entire edifice is just built on a couple of guys going out for beers, you know, (laughs) like when you realize the massive pyramid, the trillions of dollars of notional principle out there that dwarfs the entire size of the global economy and the whole thing is teetering on this little number that's determined by a bunch of folks making phone calls, I think most participants don't know that maybe now they do but if you interviewed people 10 years ago and said hey how is libor determined i don't think most people knew what the british banking association was i don't think most people in academia or in in practice knew that it was based on a survey and not based on actual lending data and so when it came to the surface i think a lot of people were just super surprised that it's a human story
1: yes and that was almost like so much in finance it's like a historical anomaly whereby The original LIBOR was invented for the purposes of one deal decades ago. And at the time, there was really no such thing as derivatives. You know, this was for it to price a loan, and then it got used to kind of price structured notes. And and then the derivatives market blows up. And the original inventors of LIBOR and the BBA, to be fair to them, were unaware of where it was going to go. But nobody turned around and said... Hey, maybe we should have a think about how this thing's actually determined, but I would say that that's a a theme in in all of the stories that I write about markets, is this kind of idea that there's the veneer of complexity and science and respectability, and underneath it, there's chaos. (laughs) And you have these opportunities for people to cheat, and systems that are so complicated, there's always ways around them, and traders are highly incentivized to find those. And it's just consistently amazing to me how, exactly like you say with LIBOR, how actually people with enough motivation are able to cheat the system because they know more as practitioners than anyone else.
0: I don't think we could end this interview without talking about current events. The whole Robin Hood fiasco, I actually just read a couple of days ago that the folks in Nottingwood Forest who are the Robin Hood support society is getting all sorts of grief by Twitter and and so forth by accident. But this whole story, the whole narrative of GameStop and AMC has been set up as one of class warfare, as of the little guy going up against the big soulless hedge funds, which I find absolutely fascinating, especially because, you know, we all know how the movie ends and it's the little guy that gets crushed in the end but at least for a few moments, a few fleeting moments, it looked like the folks with the pitchforks were able to stick it to the big hedge funds. This seems to be a narrative that pops up from time to time in financial markets.
1: Yeah, definitely, and and I can't criticize it because that's essentially why I think Nav's story resonated so much, is the idea that he's the little guy taking on the, you know, David taking on Goliath and succeeding and ultimately getting taken down. I think inevitably with the Robin Hood thing, From what I know and from what I've read, which is no more than is out there, inevitably the the situation is more complicated than that. It seems like there are some on that Reddit forum that made a lot of money and lots of people that didn't make any money. And actually, maybe they're quite sophisticated, the people that made a lot of money. Like the main guy, I believe, is like a sort of investment professional, or at least was. And ultimately, it wouldn't surprise me if trading data showed that There were establishment hedge fund players that were either jumping on the back of or exacerbating the moves and made more money than, than the Robin Hood traders did at all. So I think it's appealing, but I think ultimately it's definitely simplistic. But what I do find fascinating is just how the government and the regulators are going to be able to grapple with this. Because it seems like, like we were talking about earlier, the manipulation laws might not be fit for purpose. If you all go on a forum and say, hey, I think this dog of a company is really great. And everyone else goes on and says, yeah, I agree with you. Why don't we buy it? Is that manipulating the market? I'm not sure it is at the moment. And as far as I know, the numbers of... Forum members on this Reddit forum have like doubled, so you have this swarm of retail traders that you can imagine like going from stock to stock, like locusts. So it's going to be really fascinating to see how the government responds to that and whether it was a one-off because of the circumstances of that one stock or that two stocks, or whether this is something that we're going to see going forward.
0: And that's sort of the uh, why there was so much support for the free nav hashtag was this seeing him as the little guy. I mean, I think that. Look, these were super small cap stocks that, that were being gyrated all over the place. And although there will be plenty of people who will lose money, plenty of widows and orphans and young gamers who will lose money, it's kind of small potatoes compared to what the E-mini is, right? And so I think that while it probably will raise some investigative hackles, as long as it's limited to the small caps, I don't think it's going to cause any kind of massive regulatory intervention. But you can see already... The folks at robin hood are concerned they don't want to lose their golden goose and if there are some regulations imposed on them and on these forums then they're going to see a loss of business so i think they're taking an interest in kind of toning down the gamification that they use to try and make sure that they avoid any kind of regulatory oversight
1: yeah you're not the only one to have suggested that but that story just became so big my publisher wrote me an email saying, if you can get a proposal together in the next two days, I think I can get you a good deal. And then the next day, there was an announcement that Ben Mizraki, you know, already sold the movie rights to the book. So I think everyone had the same idea. Yeah, I don't know. The thing about the Nav story, it, it just was so rich because he always argued that the system was unfair. And when he was arrested, it was so shortly after the Michael Lewis book, talking about the HFT techniques and the kind of idea that the markets were rigged, that it wasn't like superimposed after the event. Like He genuinely believed that he was fighting against this kind of corrupt system. And I think with Robin Hood, to me, it's more anarchic than that. And how you go about kind of creating a narrative out of that as well, i I don't know, but I'll be intrigued to see
0: what they do with it. Yeah, there'll no doubt be a bunch of little side stories that will come out of that main story, just like they did with your books. Liam, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you coming in today, and I want to remind everybody to check out both of these books. Flash Crash, super interesting, and The Fix. You'll learn a lot about commodity trading, you'll learn a lot about derivatives, you'll learn a lot about the sociology of of the markets, and there's some fantastic psychological portraits in there and great writing. So appreciate it, Liam. Keep up the good work.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate it. Thank
0: you for tuning in to the UnSiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.